Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We have a guest speaker with us, and we hope that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, Back in the 30s, you know, our church, you come in here this morning and you see lights and you see facilities, and but it was different back in the 30s, wasn't it, David? It was different. David Grant, his dad pastored Oak City Assembly of God. Uh, his name is Curtis Grant. David uh, David is one of our PKs. Now, you may want to get on to some of those teachers back then, you know, when once you hear David or pat him on the back, but uh, so David... Uh, David was raised here in Tallahassee. His dad pastored our church, and at a very young age, David felt a call of God to missions. And for over 50 years, David has given his life, he and his wife Beth, to India, and they still are involved with Project Rescue, which is an international human trafficking ministry that we support on a monthly basis. We support, we support that. But we are very honored to have uh, missionary David Grant with us, you're going to enjoy the uh, the, the blessing of, of God, the call of God upon upon His life. And would you make welcome this morning to Generations Church, Reverend David Grant? And good morning. Pastor Brian Nugent, his wife, are old friends from Southeastern in Kentucky. I preached Brian in Kentucky a long time ago. My dad pastored 10 cities in the first 11 years of my life. We moved every year, except one. So I was born in Pensacola. Dad pastored in Milton, Baghdad, Polly. And then at, uh, I was four years old when Dad moved to Mississippi, Vicksburg, Mississippi, for a year. And then the next year, Lake Village, Arkansas, first grade. Second grade, back to Columbia, Mississippi. Third grade, Oak City Assembly in Tallahassee. So I remember we were here for 13 months, and I was in the third grade. I was preaching in Atlanta some time back. And a lady walked up to me, and she said, I was your Sunday school class teacher when you were in the third grade at Oak City in Tallahassee. What a history. Then uh, fourth and fifth grade was Greer, South Carolina. Sixth grade, Rebecca and O'Kella. Seventh grade, Dad moved back to Pensacola and pioneered a new church and stayed 17 years. So that was my childhood. We moved a lot, but it was uh, constantly just going like a one-year revival to a one-year revival. It was a good time. It was a great time. We knew more about U-Haul trucks than anybody. And there was three of us older boys, and so we kind of took our world with us every time we moved. Now, when we were here in Tallahassee, my baby sister was born. Gloria was born here. And uh, that was like 65 years ago. So I don't expect that anybody here today was there 65 years ago. But I'm glad that all of you guys are here. 
And I'm glad Pastor Brian and Nugent and his wife are here. And I'm glad that today is the day that we can get together and uh, talk about the goodness of God. Now, in the book of John, chapter 14 and verse 1, there's two fabulous scriptures. The first one begins with, let not your heart be troubled. We live in troubling times, and the scripture is clear. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. God is in charge. It seems like, well, God didn't answer my prayer. Well, maybe he did. You don't know about it. Maybe God had bigger plans or more difficult plans, challenging plans. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Jesus said, believe also in me. We are people who believe that Jesus Christ is in control of this universe. But there's an enemy. And that enemy is powerful. And that enemy is at work in powerful ways. And God has allowed, mysteriously, God has allowed evil to triumph in many situations. And I'm not sure because it's judgment. I'm not sure why God has allowed it to triumph. I do know that the nation that does not honor God is under judgment. I know that. And we who do not follow obedience are under the judgment. But I know that he's also a God of mercy. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, he has promised to heal the land. He has promised that. But the promise is based on repentance. The promise is not based on superficial, I'm sorry, God, I did it again. No, it's a matter of turning away from the evil and turning toward what is good. I'm probably the most saved person here today because I've been saved about 150 times. My dad's favorite sermon was the rapture. Jesus is coming tonight at midnight and nobody's going. When he got through preaching, nobody was going. The altars filled myself as well. I mean, I went to the altar every time he preached on the rapture because I wasn't sure. I lived in fear of the coming of the Lord, fear that I would miss it, fear that all had not been forgiven, that there might be something that I had failed to confess. I lived in fear as a child. Now, in one parsonage, we had a two-bedroom parsonage, so the three of us boys lived in one room and slept on the same bed. Fortune's a big bed, but I had to sleep with my two brothers, and that was a terrible situation. And at midnight, I was awake, waiting for the coming of the Lord. We had a clock in the living room that struck the hour, and at 12, I was laying there awake as a little kid, waiting to see if Jesus would come. And when the hour struck, my brothers were there, but that didn't help me because they knew they weren't going. I would get up in the middle of the night and go in my parents' room and feel on the bed. Daddy would wake up and say, what's wrong? Nothing, just check it. <laughs> just make sure they were still there. Now, I'm sure none of you ever felt that way, but I did. 
And so there was 150 times I went to the altar to kind of settle things. I was 12 years old when I finally found my scripture. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Say it with me. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And suddenly I realized I had called 150 times. I had called. He answered every time. And I was really not in that great a danger as I thought I was. If you'll call on the name of the Lord, he will answer you. He will. If our nation will call on the name of the Lord, he will bring healing. If our nation will call. And I say to you, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Jesus said, believe also in me. Now, as the scripture comes back on the screen in a moment, there's another part of that scripture that we'll come back to. In my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, what I've told you, that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. In the King James Version, it says there's many mansions. In other versions, it says rooms. In one version, it says, in my father's house, there's lots of room. In my father's house, there's room for the whole world. That's what missions is all about. Missions is about the message. In my father's house, there's room. There's room. In my father's house, there's room. In my father's house, there's room. And Jesus goes on to say, I am going there to prepare a place for you. Now, this sermon today is based upon one word, place, place, P-L-A-C-E, place. I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm so intrigued with this word place. Is there a place for you? Is there a place for me? Do we have a place? My baby brother was born. We were in Greer, South Carolina, so there was five of us kids. So seven of us gathered around the dinner table. There was always a place for me. Seven of us, but there was a place. And normally at our house, there was never seven of us. There was usually 12 or 14. Because my dad was one of those gregarious people who would walk in the door at supper time saying, Mama, look who's here. He was always bringing people home for supper. And my, my, my mother expected it. She never complained. She never got angry. She never said, did you check with me? No. She just always had extra on the stove. There was enough for whomever my dad would be bringing in the door. So it was not just the seven of us. There was more. There was always room. And I stand here almost with tears in my eyes thinking of it. There was always room. There was always a place at the table. There was always a place. Church, Generations Church, there's a place for you. There's a place that God has of responsibility. 
of commitment, of investment, of involvement. Where is my place? With all the happenings of the last six months, we've not been able to get together as much as we used to, but it doesn't take away, where's my place? We don't always have to physically be present, but there's a place that's yours. There's a place, a place of ministry, a place of involvement, a place. Let's describe a place for a moment. I go back to the Old Testament, and I say, where is my place? And let me describe it from the Old Testament. My place is on my face before God. My place is a place of intercession. My place is a place of repentance, not only for myself, but for my family and for my nation. Job was this righteous man, the richest man in the world at that time. And yet Job said, I will pray. I have 10 children. One of my children may have sinned last night. I'm here. My place is to intercede for my 10 children. That was Job. What is my place? My place is to intercede for my wife and for my two daughters, for my two grandson, my two son-in-laws, and my four grandchildren. Every day I call them by name. I cover them with prayer and the blood of Jesus Christ. My place is a place of intercession. My place is to say, God, in the nations that do not know you, in the nations where the gospel is not preached openly, where there's restrictions and persecution of the church, where there is not the openness that we have in our nation to proclaim the good news. I pray for open doors. I pray for the message to go. I pray. What is my place? My place is a place of intercession. Secondly, my place is a place of investment. What do I invest in? Missions, faith promises. And I want to add to what Pastor Brian has said. A faith promise is not what you can do. It's what you cannot do except by the power of God. That's why we call it faith. A faith promise is not saying this is how much is in my bank account, this is how much is my salary, this is how much my tithe, and this is how much I can give to missions. No. Faith is saying, God, this is beyond me. The need is greater than I have the ability to meet. But would you do something miraculous through me? Would you provide miraculously through me? Would you flow through me by the power of the Holy Spirit? That's what a faith promise is. A faith promise is not what you can do. A faith promise is what God wants to do through you. And you are saying, let me partner in my investments. Let me say that I am not limited to what I do. Because God does through me the impossible. That's my place. A place of intercession. A place of investment. A place of responsibility. A place of commitment. A place of openness. I loved our music director today as he was singing. God has a calling for you. In some way, somehow, there's a place. A place for you. 
I go back to 12 years of age, Pensacola, Florida. Charles Greenaway, missionary, was preaching for my dad. And he told the story of a 12-year-old boy who had no money to put in the missionary offering at the end of the service. And when they passed the offering plate as they used to do in those days, this 12-year-old boy took the offering plate and said, Jesus, I don't have any money, but you can have me. And he took the offering plate and laid it on the floor and stood up in it and said, I will be the offering today. And Charles Greenaway said, that was the greatest missionary offering we ever received. A 12-year-old boy standing in the offering plate. When he told that story, I was 12. When they passed the offering pan at the end of that service, I said, God, if that other little boy can do it, so can I. And I took that offering pan and I laid it on the floor and I stood up in it. And the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, David, you will go to India. Twelve years of age, I found my place. Twelve years of age, I found my future. Twelve years of age, I heard God speak to my heart. And that one word was India. You will go to India. The India that I felt called to when I was 12 years old, and now I'm 74. That India has now grown to 1 billion, 350 million people. India has just passed China as the number one populated nation on the planet. A billion, 350 million. One of the things we're concerned about in America is abortion. India has aborted a hundred million babies. I don't know what the number is for America. You probably might know it better than I do. I almost avoid that. How many? How many? How many? How many? There are more boys in India than girls. Because girls don't have the value of a boy. So girls are more often aborted. Whereas boys have value. More value than the girl. When God gave Beth and I two daughters, so many of my wonderful, wonderful Indian friends said, we're praying for you to have a son, which is a wonderful thing. I said, no, I'm praying for daughters. Because my whole life has been focused on the value of the girl child. The value of the girl child. And I said, I'm praying for daughters. And they kind of looked at me mystified. Because the value of the boy has always been the value of the boy. The children. The children. The value of a child. The value... India, 12 years of age. Now, you've got to understand that I've been in the ministry all my life. It started when I was a little bitty boy. I mean, we were in church five times a week. We had no television. That was a sin. Church was all we did. So when we kids got together to play games, the only game we knew how to play was church. We didn't know how to play cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians. All we had was church. And I, 
Our cat died. I put him in a shoebox and had a funeral. It was so wonderful. I preached him right into heaven. It was such a good funeral. We dug him up the next day and did it all over again. The third day we dug him up, Mama caught us. She said, bury that cat and leave him in peace. We cried. It was weird. A cat had nine lives. And our cat only got three funerals. Dad was always, he had a big garden. We had a cow. We had a horse. We had animals. <laughs> Once we had 12 chickens. My brother said to me, David, the chickens aren't going to heaven. They haven't been baptized. I said, I will baptize the chickens. We couldn't find a big container of water, but Dad had a huge container of gasoline beside the house. So I baptized them. They all died. Dad came home, shouted, who killed the chickens? We said, we didn't kill them. We baptized them. And God took them to heaven. That was my childhood. In the ministry as a little boy, <laughs> all my life, 12 years of age, I found my place, and I began to prepare. At 15, I was traveling. At, seven, at 16, I was preaching revival meetings. At 17, I was a full-time evangelist. And at 22, I left for India. I landed in Calcutta 50 years ago. Calcutta is a... Suffering city of great darkness. But when I landed in Calcutta, there were nine million refugees in that city. There had been a civil war in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is only 35 miles from the Calcutta, the border is. In the civil war, the Pakistani soldiers had killed three million Bangladeshis raped a million women, shattered their lives. Nine million Bangladeshi refugees fled across the border into India and into the city of Calcutta. At that time, the population of Calcutta was nine million. And nine million refugees. I was 22 years of age, and I stepped off a plane in Calcutta Mark Buntain met my plane, and the first thing he said to me was, Hurry up, boy! You're preaching in 30 minutes! That was my greeting after 36 hours on the plane. And that's the way it's been ever since. A place, a place of service, a place of responsibility. We're not travelers, we are missionaries. And you have a mission right here in Tallahassee. It's not a matter of just floating. You have responsibility. And I preach three to four times a day, every day for the first six months, and that's been frequently. Feeding programs. We were feeding 100,000 Bangladeshi children from the Assembly of God Church in Calcutta. That was 50 years ago. Now I'm going to bring you 50 years later up till today. And I'll be giving you the story of who we're feeding now, 50 years later. Calcutta, and then throughout India. 
I preached evangelistic meetings all over Kerala, Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, Andhra Pradesh. Two of my friends are sitting here today originally from Hyderabad. They are now wonderful people here in Tallahassee. And when I saw them, I said, where are you from? Because I've been on the phone today to Hyderabad. We have an Assembly of God church in Hyderabad that runs 6,000 in attendance. Pastored by a lady by the name of Arlene Stubbs. She and her husband started the church in a garage 30 years ago. He died seven years ago. And she continues to serve as the lead pastor. Church of 6,000 people. As I traveled across the nation, the city of Chennai, Pastor David Mohan, we were with each other from the beginning. 47 years ago, I helped David Mohan start a church with seven people. Seven people. Today, that church runs 50,000. It's the largest church in that area, 50,000 people. And David Mohan is the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God of India. We now have 8,000 Assemblies of God churches in India. This Sunday morning, except for the COVID, normally there's a million Assemblies of God believers. But when I rejoice at a million believers, I realize that's a billion, 350 million who are not there. So that's one for every 1,350 people. So we've got to be careful. The need is far greater than we could ever, ever imagine. What is our place? To believe God for the impossible? To invest with faith? To intercede with passion? What is our place? To find where God wants us and how we can fit into that ministry with all of our hearts. At 17, I made a vow to God I would not marry till I was 30. I said, God, I want to give you 13 years that you'll get every day and every dollar of my life for 13 years. Between the time I was 17 and 31, I gave every dollar I made to missions above what it cost me to get from one place to the next. God helped me to give approximately $400 a week when I was not overseas. By the time I turned 31, I'd given over $250,000 of my personal income to missions. I had nothing. I didn't have a piece of property. I didn't have a, I had absolutely nothing except missions. And then God brought Beth into my life. I was preaching at youth camp in Pennsylvania. I walked on the platform. I was 29 years old. And I was thinking, my vow is till I'm 30. And then God's going to give me a wife. I walked on the platform and said to the district youth director, whom Brian used to be one of those, Paul Wislocky, I said, Paul, who's the girl playing the piano? That's my type. He said, yeah, he said, her husband's leading the worship. I said, story of my life. I said, when you're 29 years old, it seems like they're all gone. 
The worship leader, Brian Schaefer, he and his wife, Beth, were serving church in Philadelphia as minister of music, minister of youth. Beth was the principal of the Christian school. They were 25, both of them were 25 years of age. They met at Central Bible College and married at 21. Been married four years. Brian became a great friend. Beth became a friend. I have to confess, I don't often tell this. I teased Brian. I said, Brian, you have a wonderful wife. If anything ever happens to you, I'll marry her. I often, I seldom tell that actually. Six weeks later, Brian died in an accident. And Beth became a widow at 25. She stayed on to the church, church of 400 people. She was a minister of music. She was a minister of youth. She was a principal of the school. When she left that church two years later, they hired three men to take her place. I love to say that. We men are valuable. We're worth about one-third of a woman. Sometimes less. I had left that youth camp and went back to India for one year of crusades. A year went by. I knew nothing of Brian's death. I returned to the States and I flew into Philadelphia to preach a missions conference. And someone said, did you hear that Brian died last year? I said, no, I, I, I didn't know. I phoned Beth. And I said, I've just heard. I said, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? I will never forget that young widow's answer. She said, David, there's sadness. There's grief. But there's peace. We are like currency in the hands of God. He can spend us as he pleases. We don't belong to ourselves. We are his to do with as he chooses. I say again, there's a mystery in life. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's lots of room. There's a place for you at God's table. There's a place for you in God's house. There's a place for you in God's kingdom. There's a place of involvement and investment and intercession. There's a place for you. God doesn't make mistakes. I began to phone Beth, strictly as a friend, honestly, at that time. But 200 phone calls later, 12 months later, my phone calls changed. I was praying when I said, Lord, I'm almost 31 years old. I have not felt comfortable finding a wife. I had not seen Beth. I only talked to her on the phone as a friend. I said, Lord, what about Beth Schaefer? And as clear as crystal, at 12 years of age, God said, I'm going to send you to India. At 31, God said, she's the one. Young 27-year-old widow. I said, amen. I grabbed the phone and called my dad. I said, I'm getting married. He said, to whom? I didn't even know you were going with anybody. I said, well, I've never gone with her. He said, what is she like? Wonderful. What does she look like? Beautiful. But haven't seen her in two years. And the last time I saw her, she was married to somebody else. He said, I'll be praying for you. 
I hung up with Dad and phoned Beth. I said, could I take you to lunch tomorrow? She said, sure. I'm in Dallas, Texas. I'm leaving for India the next day for six months of crusades. But I changed my flight. And at 6 the next morning, I'm on my way to Philadelphia to take her to lunch. And then back to, pardon me, to Los Angeles that night and on India. At lunch, I proposed our first date. I said, oh, this is going to sound strange, but I prayed through about it. It's God's will. I love you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry you. She smiled and said, you're entirely your opinion. I said, I'm not officially proposing. I'm leaving for India tonight, and I'll be gone for six months. And I'd like to write to you, but I don't want you to write me back. I feel like I need to write and build a foundation of trust that God has planned. So I wrote her 180 letters in 180 days. She never wrote me one. And just at my request. I flew back to the state, straight to Philadelphia. Second date, I said, what do you think? She said, this is highly unusual. But I believe God's in this. And I will marry you. He said, amen. I said, take all the time you need. But 10 weeks from now, you and I are scheduled to be in India. <laughs> I said, thousands of people will come to Jesus. And if you don't go, I'm not going to go. And they'll all die and go to hell. But this <laughs> But there's no pressure on you. <laughs> Nine weeks later, we're married. And a week later, we're in India. And that was 44 years ago. 44 years ago. Now, I say to my Indian friends who are here, they will know what I'm talking about. The first night, I stood in front of 10,000 people in India. And I said, I want you to meet my wife. And many of them knew me. Thousands of them knew me from crusades for all those 10 years, I said, my wife was a widow. The crowd went berserk. He married a widow. I mean, 10,000 people were talking to each other. He married a widow. He married a widow. He married a widow. He married a widow. It took several minutes before they stopped. We go on with the service. After the service, the general superintendent of India came and said, Now, David, 10 years you've been in India, and you think you know this culture, but you don't. An orphan is considered cursed because he has no parents. A widow is cursed because she has no husband. He said it would be better if you never, ever publicly said that Beth was a widow again publicly. I said, I honor you and I listen to you. But I said, the value of a widow is more important than silence. I married a widow. And it was a shock in the Indian culture no one ever marries a widow. An orphan. But my world for 50 years has been the children, the orphans, and the widow. The disenfranchised 
the ones who had no place. Because God says, I go to bear a place for you. That's what you do in Tallahassee, making place for somebody in the city. That's what missionaries do. I go to prepare a place for you, a place. Now, that not only is a place in heaven in eternity where God has room for the whole world, but it's a place right here in the family of God. It's right here. The same responsibilities that God has for you, a place right here, right now. And then God gave us two daughters. Our older daughter, Rebecca, who's 39 years old, married a Kayafa missionary, and they live in New Delhi, India. Tyler is in charge of Kayafa for India, a nation of 1,350,000,000 people. Rebecca, we launched Project Rescue 25 years ago, and she's been involved with Project Rescue. 25 years ago, I helped open a teen challenge center in the slums of Bombay, India. Next door to our teen challenge center is a red light district. 25 years in India, and I knew nothing about prostitution, nothing about red light districts, nothing about human trafficking where little girls are sold at the age of 12. into the brothels in Bombay and Calcutta and Delhi and cities of India. But our Teen Challenge staff took me in the red light district in Bombay where there were 100,000 girls who had been trafficked, sold. And God spoke to my heart and said, I gave you two daughters now I want to give you thousands of daughters. I said, God, there's a million of these girls in India. And God said, then pray for all of them. Then pray for all of them. I have a place. I have a place for the despised, the marginalized, the ones that nobody is interested in. They are my daughters. And I'm calling you to a new ministry. I'm calling you to where you will not always be understood. I'm calling you to do something that others will not always understand. Rescue and restore a million little girls to find their place. Rebecca was 16. Our first home of hope, an apartment for 16-year-old little girls rescued out of the red light district. And Rebecca ministered to those girls. Rebecca came back to the States and graduated from Evangel University, went on to Missouri State and did a master's degree in using theater as therapy for abused children, using music and art and dance and drama to bring healing to their hearts. And 24 years of age, she went to India as a missionary to work in the brothels of Bombay and Delhi opening up homes of shelters for little girls. Six years later, married Tyler, and now they're back in Delhi with two of our grandchildren. 
Starting in April, they were locked down in Delhi for 100 days. My seven-year-old grandson learned to ride a bicycle in their apartment. They came back to the States in August, and now they're going back to India the end of December. The flights are resuming again more openly, and people are traveling more freely now, and they plan to go back with our two grandchildren. Our younger daughter, Jennifer, graduated as a nurse. At 29 years of age, she was director of nursing at a hospital in Springfield, Missouri, and married a young man who was a professional baseball player. They went to high school together. Six years, he played for the Tampa Devil Rays. And then God spoke to him to start Project Rescue Foundation, a foundation that supports Project Rescue through the secular world. And then Jennifer, God spoke to her, and she resigned a wonderful position as a nurse, a director of nursing at a hospital, and said, God wants me to work for Project Rescue. She's our administrator. Both of our daughters, both of our son-in-laws, and their two little girls, and four of our grandchildren involved with Project Rescue. That has been the last 25 years. We are ministering all over India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and now in Europe. Spain has the highest rate of prostitution in Europe. The refugees flooding in there by the millions from Africa and from the Middle East are vulnerable to the traffickers. Africa is now open. We're now opening up in Vietnam and in Thailand and in Malaysia. God has a place for the marginalized. God has a place for those that don't have value in the eyes of the world. But from the time that little girl was born, God had a place. God had plans to rescue, restore, and bring back healing in the name of Jesus. Healing in the name of Jesus. We opened Project Rescue, and people began to send money to Springfield, Missouri, to Central Mail. And the executive called me in and said, David, we're getting all these checks for David Grant's prostitutes. I said, well, that's not exactly the way it is. I said, God has called us to rescue and redeem and restore a generation of young women that have been violated and marginalized. And they put their, the executives put their blessings on it. Six months ago, COVID hit. And India shut down the red light district for a million girls in slavery. And they said, we want all the migrants to go back to their villages. Now, migrants, we're talking about two million people, two, 200 million people, migrants. And the government shut down the trains at the same time. They were supposed to walk. Some of them 100 miles with their children back to their villages. It was a terrible time in India. And suddenly, thousands of girls that we had been ministering to, helping them get out of the red light district, suddenly they could leave because the pimps are gone. The government shut it down. But there was no more customers, no more money, and no more food. And Project Rescue began to feed thousands and thousands of women and their children that had been, that had been stuck in the red light districts. 
Then they said, would you help us find a new profession? We launched a massive program of training for these young women and the young girls. In the last six months, we have seen more women come to Christ, more children rescued, and more miracles happen in the last six months during COVID than we have seen in the last 25 years. In the last 25 years. Because God has used this virus to turn the tide. To turn the tide. God can use anything to turn our nation back to him. God can use anything to turn our city, our county, and our families and our children and our grandchildren to himself. And I challenge you this morning, let this terrible time around the world be used to bring us back to reality and to find our place of involvement. Now, not only will we receive an offering for Project Rescue, and you'll be feeding children today, young women, some of them 12 years old, some 14, 16, some in their 20s, and helping them find a new profession and a new occupation. That's what you're offering to go for today. But my greatest desire today is that you will find your place. I didn't come for the offering, even though I'll be blessed, and missionaries will be blessed by your faith promise and offering. I came because I wanted you to know God has a place for you. On the table outside, there is a book called Beyond the Soil Curtain. It's a free book to everybody here. Please do not leave without picking up your free copy. Someone said to me, but I want to help you, David. Cover the book. If you want to do that, just drop a $5 bill on the, on the table out there. Lexi and Gail will be there probably to help. Please, you will be blessed with this book. We have distributed 100,000 copies of this book. The back says 15-year-old Sumi peels back the soiled curtain of her room in Bombay. She watches the middle-aged customer pay them at them. This will be her ninth customer of the day. When she complies with his demands, she'll be released to attend a church service conducted by Project Rescue. We have red light district churches across the nation of India rescuing the most marginalized and heartbroken people beyond the soil curtain. Not what's behind the soil curtain, what's beyond the soil curtain. Pick up your copy of the book in the brochure that is there. Take it home with you. Find your place in this month of missions. Find your place. Right now, I want you to pray a prayer with me. I want you to take your right hand and put it right over your heart. And I want you to say with me these words and mean them from the depths of your spirit. Say with me, Lord Jesus, there is a place in my heart created just for you. Would you come right now and feel that place? 
Come, Lord Jesus. With my lips I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. With my heart I believe and with my lips I confess Jesus is my Savior. Come, Lord Jesus, fill my heart with your presence, your forgiveness, and your joy. In Jesus' name. Take your hand and touch your head and say with me, Lord Jesus, wash my mind. Fill my mind with the Holy Spirit. Show me my place of intercession, of involvement, of investment. Give me the mind of Christ. Now lift your hands and hold them up and say, Father, I give you my hands. I give you my heart. I give you my mind. But now I give you my hands. Let these be healing hands, healing hands, hands that reach out in this city to bring healing to broken hearts, hands that reach across the oceans to Spain, to Africa, to Asia, to Nepal, to Bangladesh, to India, and say, heal, Jesus. Stretch forth your hand through my hands, and as I give, as I go, and as I pray, let these hands be healing hands. Healing hands. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. One more time, give him praise. Would you do it? Just give him praise. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask our musicians to sing. The worship team was so wonderful this morning. Thank you. My brother, thank you. God bless everyone. We're going to sing an appropriate. But I want to remind you that the reason for being here today was to give our heart to Jesus Christ. Inviting the Holy Spirit to fill our minds and let God give us hands that heal. Your giving, your intercession, your place, on your face before God, on your knees at Calvary, and walking in the center of God's will. Thank you for taking me. To, I took a lot of time this morning, but I just want you to know that in the midst of all the difficulties, we're not shaking hands, we're not hugging necks, but we are here to love each other and to love God. Pastor, come, would you? God bless you. Give God praise one more time before Pastor comes to you. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. 